and turn to Ezekiel chapter 37, preaching in the evening here this week and returning to this chapter because uh, we've referenced it a couple of times in uh, recent morning sermons and seems like a pretty good indication from the Lord that maybe we should look into it a little bit more, although I'll tell you we're not going to uh, really consider the details of this passage in, uh, in great substance. Um, uh, but, but uh, we're here to look at it this evening, and uh, we're going to look particularly at the very last portion of uh, this chapter, uh, especially verse 27. Uh, we're doing this again here this evening because I was up at uh, Manuel preaching this morning in West Lafayette. They send you uh, their greetings, and uh, we're also thankful as a family to be back from vacation, and uh, we're uh, grateful for the time that God gave us away. And now we're thankful to be able to come to Ezekiel chapter 37, which is written by the prophet Ezekiel. Uh, He is in Babylon as he writes this with those who have been taken captive uh, by the a terrible Babylonian nation. This was, of course, God's judgment on the people of Israel because of their faithlessness. And yet in their lowest moment, uh, when there was death uh, all around, God gives this great promise in uh, the form of a vision to Ezekiel. So we're going to read chapter 37. Let's pray before we do. Lord, we thank you that you are a God who does uh, give visions to your people. Uh, You have revealed yourself to us because you want us to know you. And we pray that that would be the end result of all that is done here this evening. That you would draw near to us and that we might draw near to you even as we meditate upon your word. So bless us to that end, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. This is God's word, Ezekiel chapter 37. The hand of the Lord was upon me. And he brought me out in the spirit of the Lord and set me down in the middle of the valley. And it was full of bones. And he led me around among them. And behold, there were very many on the surface of the valley. And behold, they were very dry. And he said to me, son of man, can these bones live? And I answered, O Lord God, you know. Then he said to me, prophesy over these bones and say to them, O dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God to these bones, Behold, I will cause breath to enter you, and you shall live. And I will lay sinews upon you, and will cause flesh to come upon you, and cover you with skin, and put breath in you, and you shall live. And you shall know that I am the Lord. So I prophesied as I was commanded. And as I prophesied, there was a sound. And behold, a rattling And the bones came together, bone to bone. And I looked, and behold, there were sinews on them. And the flesh had come upon them, and skin had covered them. But there was no breath in them. Then he said to me, prophesy to the breath. Prophesy, son of man, and say to the breath, thus says the Lord God. Come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe upon these slain, that they may live. So I prophesied as he commanded me. And the breath came into them, and they lived and stood on their feet, an exceedingly great army. Then he said to me, Son of man, these bones are the whole house of Israel. Behold, they say, our bones are dried up and our hope is lost. We indeed are cut off. Therefore prophesy and say to them, thus says the Lord God, behold, I will open your graves and raise you from your graves, O my people. And I will bring you into the land of Israel, and you shall know that I am the Lord when I open your graves and raise you from your graves, O my people. 
and I will put my spirit within you, and you shall live, and I will place you in your own land. Then you shall know that I am the Lord. I have spoken, and I will do it, declares the Lord. The word of the Lord came to me, son of man, take a stick and write on it. For Judah and the people of Israel associated with him. Then take another stick and write on it. For Joseph, the stick of Ephraim, and all the house of Israel associated with him. And join them to one another into one stick, that they may become one in your hand. And when your people say to you, will you not tell us what you mean by these? Say to them, thus says the Lord God. Behold, I am about to take the stick of Joseph that is in the hand of Ephraim and the tribes of Israel associated with him, and I will join with it the stick of Judah and will make them one stick that they may be one in my hand. When the sticks on which you write are in your hand before their eyes, then say to them, thus says the Lord God, Behold, I will take the people of Israel from the nations among which they have gone and will gather them from all around and bring them to their own land. And I will make them one nation in the land on the mountains of Israel and one king shall be king over them all. And they shall no longer be two nations and no longer divided into two kingdoms. They shall not defile themselves any more with their idols and their detestable things or with any of their transgressions. But I will save them from all the backslidings into which they have sinned and will cleanse them and they shall be my people and I will be their God. My servant David shall be king over them and they shall all have one shepherd. They shall walk in my rules and be careful to obey my statutes. They shall dwell in the land that I gave to my servant Jacob where your fathers lived. They and their children and their children's children shall dwell there forever And David, my servant, shall be their prince forever. I will make a covenant of peace with them. It shall be an everlasting covenant with them. And I will set them in their land and multiply them and will set my sanctuary in their midst forevermore. My dwelling place shall be with them and I will be their God and they shall be my people. Then the nations will know that I am the Lord who sanctifies Israel when my sanctuary is in their midst forever. Thus ends this reading of God's holy word, which we pray he would write on our hearts today and forever. It's been almost 24 years since Elizabeth and I were on this platform to be married. There have been many people married in this place since then, and we're looking forward to more weddings that are to come. And uh, when a couple is joined together in marriage, we hear vows like these. I, James, take you, Elizabeth, to be my wedded wife, and I do promise and covenant before God and these witnesses to be your loving and faithful husband in sickness and in health, in plenty and in want, in joy and in sorrow, as long as we both shall live. There is a a commitment that is made that I will be yours and you will be mine. And of course, the longing and the the desire is for companionship and for union and for progress and for a development of this relationship into something even richer still. And we know from the scripture, of course, that marriage is a picture of what God does with Christ and the church. And that is just one part or one expression, if you will, of God's larger promise through all of the scripture 
So Ezekiel is teaching the people who are in captivity, who've come to a very low place, and you, you see the, the low place that they're in. Uh, in, in verse 11, the people there were lamenting, our bones are dried up, our hope is lost, we indeed are cut off. This was the state and the mentality of the people of God who'd been hauled into captivity. And as we see in other parts of the passage, you have not only those who went out from Judah that were cut off now in Babylon, but the uh, 10 tribes from the north, uh, represented by Ephraim here in this passage, have been carried off into captivity by the Assyrian army uh, in prior years. The people of God had been removed from the land. It seemed to them as though maybe the promises of God had come to nothing. But Ezekiel is given this vision of the Lord, of the life that he can bring, not just to dead bodies. You'll notice there it says that these were not just bones in the valley. These were, these were very dry bones. This is like a steak that's been totally overcooked. I mean, all the life and flavor is just out of it altogether. There is no hope left for this steak. I mean, you, you know the difference, right? You, you get one that's good and you think there's actually hope for this thing. Well, you know, there was no hope that, this, that these bones were coming back to life. This was as, just as dry as could be. And yet Ezekiel is called to prophesy and these bones come to life. And what is the end result of all of this? God is giving this vision of what he can and he will and he does do for his people to bring spiritual life and hope and union even where things seem hopeless. And he concludes with these words in verse 27. God declares, and he declares it to you as well, my dwelling place shall be with them and I will be their God and they shall be my people. This is the great promise of God through all of the scripture. Ezekiel proclaimed it to a people who were in a very dry place in his day. And God proclaims this to you, dear brothers and sisters, in whatever your discouragements are, whether it's a grief of loss of of loved ones right now, whether it's a sense of hopelessness perhaps you have because of some life circumstance, or perhaps it's because you feel as though you were cut off. There is only one thing that I hope to convince you of here this evening. There's really only one application that we would drive to here. And that that is this, that you would believe these words from your God. His great promise to you, which is the the great promise of all the scripture. When your God says to you, in your lowest points and in your highest points, I will be your God and you will be my people. If we would just soak that in, if we would just believe that by faith, we would be blessed and we would grow. And I've chosen this passage here in Ezekiel to begin with because it is in a sense at this lowest place that Israel finds itself, that these words are given once again. But if you're a student of the Bible, Even if you're not much of a student of the Bible, you recognize that you've heard these words before. And uh, it, it is true that this is the great promise of all of the Scripture. And we sometimes think about, well, what's our greatest need? Well, our greatest need maybe is to have our sins forgiven. There are a lot of things that could be put forward as our greatest need, but actually, this promise identifies one that's that's even greater still. Yes, our our sin may be part of the problem, but what we need 
is to be in union with the living God, to know him to be our God, and that we would know and be assured that we are his people. So that there could be that sort of shalom, that kind of uh, all-encompassing peace that is given to the people of God. This is what we're longing for. This is the great promise of Scripture that runs throughout. And so we want to run throughout Scripture this evening and just see how it is that God continually sets this great promise before you, his people, so that you might be blessed. So we want to begin, first of all, by asking about the origin of the promise. Where, where does this promise originate? Or where, at least in its uh, fullest form, do we find it, first of all? That would be in God's promise to Abraham. God chose Abraham out of Ur of the Chaldeans. And, and where is Ezekiel writing here? He's writing somewhere in that neck of the woods, right? The land beyond uh, the river, uh, Tigris and Euphrates. These people were where Grandpa Abraham was when he first received the promises of God and he was called out. And in Genesis chapter 17, verses 7 and 8, God has come to Abraham and he is uh, someone who was just a worshiper of idols himself. And God in his mercy and grace took this sinful and wicked man in whom there was nothing pleasing in himself and he drew him out. And this is the promise that he gave him. He said, I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. And I will give to you and your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. This is the trajectory that he is giving to Abraham as this promise is is first given to the people of God who are called out in Father Abraham, that he's going to be our God. And he's going to be our God forever. And the promise then is reiterated to Isaac in Genesis chapter 26, verses 2 and 3. The Lord appears now to Abraham's son Isaac and said, Do not go down to Egypt. Dwell in the land which I shall tell you. Sojourn in this land, and I will be with you and will bless you. For to you and your offspring I will give all these lands, and I will establish the oath that I swore to Abraham your father. The promise still holds. Abraham died. The promise is given to Isaac. And then to Jacob in Genesis chapter 28, uh, he's there and he sees the, the vision in Bethel of the ladder being dropped down from heaven. And God makes the promise that I, the Lord, the God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac, the land on which you lie, I will give to you and to your offspring. Your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth and you shall spread abroad to the west and to the east, to the north and to the south. And to your offspring shall all the families and in your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Behold, I am with you and I will keep you wherever you go and I will bring you back to this land for I will not leave you until I have done what I promised you. And so we're told in response that Jacob made a vow saying, if God will be with me and will keep me in this way that I go and will give me bread to eat and clothing to wear so that I come again to my father's house in peace, then the Lord shall be my God. So here it is, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. We call these the patriarchs for a reason, right? This is the the head of God's people, as it were, those who are called out. These are the the fathers of the faith. And God has made these very rich promises to them. 
And that even for you children and young people, you, you need to get this locked in your mind because this is the way God communicates the story to us. He's made these very great promises to us. And he set Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob at the head of this great family. And the promise to one after another is the same. I'm going to be your God. And you will be my people. And I'm going to keep all of my promises to you. And so we see that's really the origin with the patriarchs. Then we want to look secondly at the drumbeat of this promise through the rest of the scripture. Because God doesn't stop saying this. You know, when you listen to me preach, or when you listen to Jerry preach, or when you listen to Rich preach, and you've listened to other people preach in various churches you've been in, you you know that often the preachers kind of tend to say the same thing over and over again sometimes, right? And uh, sometimes that can be cause for rolling your eyes, and maybe there's good reason for that at times. But God's one of those kinds of preachers. Because he has one great promise that he's making to you throughout all of the scriptures, and that is that he will be your God and you will be his people. And why does he reiterate this? You think it's because he needs the reminder? No, it's the you and the me who need the reminder. We're the ones that need to be reassured of this great promise of God. And so we see it then, the drumbeat of the promise. We see it to Moses in Exodus chapter six. Here's Moses, he's Got the family of these patriarchs down in Egypt now, 400 years later, and they're getting ready to go out. And uh, they're leaving this place of slavery. They're moving into freedom. And they need to remember one thing of primary importance. They need to remember the promise of God. And so in Exodus chapter 6, verse 6, God tells him uh, to, to speak to the people and to say, I am the Lord and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians and I will deliver you from slavery to them and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. I will take you to be my people and I will be your God and you shall know that I am the Lord your God who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. Here's the God who's going to free his people from slavery. Here's the God who is going to give them new life. And he's promising, I will be your God and you will be my people. And then as he draws his people to Mount Sinai, as the story continues, and here's a grumbling people, we know as they go from Egypt to Mount Sinai, it's not like it's exactly one big happy party where everybody's remembering, oh yes, he's going to be our God and we're going to be his people. No, they're actually pretty stubborn and they're stiff-necked even right out of the gate. And then God gives his law. But how does he give his law? Well, you remember the preface of the Ten Commandments. And God spoke all these words saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. Now, the Westminster Shorter Catechism helps us greatly here. Question 44 asks, what does the preface to the Ten Commandments teach us? And it teaches us that because God is the Lord and our God and Redeemer, therefore we are bound to keep all his commandments. See, it's not just because God is God that we're supposed to keep his commandments, but it's because God is our God. It's not just that I'm to be faithful to my wife because I'm a husband. I'm to be faithful to her because she's my wife and I'm a husband to her. And so there's this intimacy 
then that shapes our very relationship so that as we contemplate the promise of God, that he's going to be our God and we're going to be his people, it's going to change the nature of the way in which we live life. Because we're in a relationship of, it's not merely a relationship of fidelity, but it's of love and it's of admiration and it's of adoration and a delighting in one another. And as we read in our memory verse there, your God delights in you. And it is because he delights in you that you ought to delight in him in response and long to keep all of his commandments. So the promises are made to the patriarchs, to Abraham, to Isaac, and Jacob. And then the drumbeat begins with Moses. And it it goes on uh, numerous references through the whole of the Pentateuch. God reminding his people of this great promise over and over again. And I'll give you just one more here. It's Leviticus chapter 26, verses 12 and 13 where God is promising that as a place of worship is established there in the land that he's going to give them, he says this, I will walk among you and will be your God, and you shall be my people. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt that you should not be their slaves. And I have broken the bars of your yoke and made you walk erect. God has made you for freedom in his presence to be able to walk at liberty and to enjoy his forgiveness and his fellowship because he would draw you to be a people, to be his own special possession. And he promises the same thing then to Joshua. And we saw that in prior months here as we worked our way through the book of Joshua, God promising he's not going to depart from Joshua, but he's going to be with him all the days of his life. He's going to be with his people as they enter and as they inhabit the land. And uh, then you may remember as we preached through the book of Ruth, what happened when Naomi went into a foreign land in those years following uh, Joshua and the judges. And Naomi and her husband go off and her husband dies. And then she comes back and who comes with her? Well, it's Ruth. And Ruth had obviously heard about these promises over and over again. And at a certain point, as they're on the road, Naomi turns and she says to Ruth, you ought to just go back to your people in the land of Moab. How does Ruth respond? She says, your God will be my God and your people will be my people. She had imbibed the promise. She she had believed what God had already promised and she knew she wanted to be connected to this. You see, the drumbeat of God's promise was working its way into the hearts of his people and not only into the hearts of his people, but people who came close enough to the living God to see what this relationship is all about. And Ruth says, I've got to have that. That right there is for me. That God needs to be my God so that I can be one of his people and his people can be my people as well. Well, we can go through uh, all of the the story of the Old Testament. You'll see this worked out over and over again. Uh, Justin preached a few weeks ago on the Shunammite woman. When she's offered a gift of anything she wants, she simply responds by saying, I dwell among my own people. It was a statement of faith that she didn't need anything. She was there among her own people. She was enjoying fellowship with God. And this was what life was supposed to look like. And uh, then, of course, she was given a son. And we had that resurrection story, which in many ways parallels what we see here in Ezekiel chapter 37, that the great problem is that there is death and there's pain and there's suffering over and over and over again. And this is why the promise is needed. We need to be reminded and reassured that God is our God 
And he even raises the dead in order to keep his promise. And then the prophets come along and they are speaking these promises to the people again. Uh, you, You hear it in Isaiah before the people go into exile. Exile has been promised because of the sin and the wickedness of the people. And when we hear about hardship that is, is to come, sometimes we can think, well, well, maybe we've been rejected or maybe God's just not keeping his promises. But in uh, Isaiah chapter uh, 43, we read this. Listen to these words from your God. But now thus says the Lord, he who created you, O Jacob, he who formed you, O Israel, fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. And when you walk through fire, you shall not be burned, and the flame shall not consume you. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. I give Egypt as your ransom, Cush and Seba in exchange for you, because you are precious in my eyes and honored, and I love you. I give men in return for you, peoples in exchange for your life. Fear not, for I am with you. I will bring your offspring from the east and from the west. I will gather you. That was before they go into exile. God lavishing his love upon his people, lavishing it upon you even here this evening through the reading of his word. These aren't just words spoken to them back then, but to you as the beloved people of God even here this evening. And then when they did go through those waters, what was it that Jeremiah came along to prophesy? Uh, we, we see it in Jeremiah chapter 30 as he's promising his people the things that are going to come. Speaking particularly of Christ, their prince shall be one of themselves. Their ruler shall come out from their midst. I will make him draw near and he shall approach me. For who would dare of himself to approach me, declares the Lord. And you shall be my people and I will be your God. And he promises that there's going to be a new covenant in Jeremiah chapter 31 with the end result being the same, that I will be your God and you will be my people. We see this in many of the minor prophets as well. We could read from Joel. We could read from Hosea. We could read from Zechariah. The drumbeat just continues. And I hope it's not something that's boring to you to hear these same words over and over and over again. And if they're boring... There's a problem because there isn't a wife on this earth who doesn't love to hear her husband say continually, I love you and you are mine and I am yours. And so it shouldn't be any burden to us to hear from our God his great love for us. Well, the the drumbeat continues through the whole of the Old Testament. Then we want to see something of the fulfillment, thirdly, of this promise. How is it uh, ultimately fulfilled? And you know where we're going with this. God promised he was going to rend the heavens and he's going to come down to his wayward people in the flesh. Let me just give you three points from the life of Christ. First of all, in Matthew chapter 1, verse 23, Joseph has promised, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel which means God with us. This God who has promised to be our God has come in the flesh in the person of Jesus Christ. Second event from the life of Christ, when he breaks the bread and he gives it to his disciples, saying, this is my body, which is given for you. 
And then, of course, in the Great Commission, following his resurrection, he promises, Lo, I will be with you always, even to the end of the age. I will be your God, and you will be my people, and I'm not going to depart because he's going to pour his Holy Spirit out upon us. And we need to believe those promises. And why is it that Jesus came? Well, the Apostle Paul gives us this promise in Romans chapter 15. He says, uh, he's telling the people to welcome one another, right? He's got Jews and Gentiles coming together. So he says, therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. For I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised to show God's truthfulness in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs and in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. As it is written, therefore, I will praise you among the Gentiles and sing to your name. And again, it is said, rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. Notice here that the Apostle Paul is saying that Jesus has come to serve not only the Jews and confirm the promises given to the patriarchs, but that part of those promises is that all of the families of the earth are going to be blessed through Abraham in Jesus Christ, and because of that, we're no longer an ethnic family of Jews, but all the Gentiles get welcomed in as well. The fulfillment comes in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, who unites Jew and Gentile, so that every person who has faith in Jesus Christ is welcome in this arrangement. It was, of course, prefigured even in and and fulfilled in part even in strangers like Ruth being drawn into the covenant. But now God's throwing things into overdrive as he pours his spirit out upon his people in the New Testament age so that all of the nations might be drawn in. And all are drawn in the same way. How, how does it happen that a person uh, is, is drawn in? Well, fourth, we want, we, want to experience, uh, we want to see the experience of this promise. We know it's fulfilled in time and space through Jesus Christ coming to be with his people. And then it's experienced by the people of God as well. And we've looked at John 1, how Jesus came to his own. His own people didn't receive him, speaking of the Jewish people in general. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Because the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. And then verse 16 says, for from his fullness, we have all received grace upon grace. If God's promises were true in the Old Testament, that he would be our God and we would be his people. How much more assuredly can we know it now that Jesus has come, God with us. Well, this is, is experienced then because Jesus has given himself to us and it is something that is to be received by faith. Galatians chapter 3 says that in Jesus Christ, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free, no male or female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring according to promise. We have been welcomed into the family of God. And so J.I. Packer points out that uh, this promise that God gives, that he will be our God and that we will be his people, really encompasses what it means to be drawn into the family of God. 
And it's a, it's a greater promise than the promise that God would justify us. We, we often think of the center of the gospel as being justification, being declared righteous by God as we place our faith in Jesus Christ. And he says, yes, that's the, the primary blessing. In other words, it, it comes first. But Packer goes on to say, it's not the fullest blessing. It's not the richest blessing. But the greatest blessing is that we would be counted as the people of God and adopted as his children. And if you haven't read the book, Knowing God, you need to, and you need to read his chapter on adoption where he unpacks this in even fuller detail so that you can revel in it even more. But this is the the pinnacle. It's the climax to the praise of God's glory that God would draw us to himself And he does this as he works in the hearts of each of us. And this promise of Ezekiel chapter 37 is fulfilled as the promises of chapter 36 are fulfilled. And he gives us a new heart that is turned to the living God. He changes our hearts and then he puts a new song in our mouths. And how is this experienced then? Well, it is experienced in the worship of the living God as we are gathered. You remember the promise of God back there in Leviticus. There's going to be this dwelling place that's established and where we're going to experience this union with our God most fully. Well, it's in that place of worship. And now Jesus has come as the true temple. And he then declares that as his spirit is poured out upon his people, where is it that he meets his people? In the church. It's in worship in particular as his people are gathered together. And so as Paul is writing to the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, he's telling them about the great privilege that they have of gathering together to worship the living God. And he quotes from Leviticus 26 when he says, What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. As God said, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them, and I will be their God and they shall be my people. Therefore go out from their midst and be separate from them, says the Lord, and touch no unclean thing. Then I will welcome you, and I will be a father to you, and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. And this is why worship is such a great privilege, first of all. It's such a great joy for us to be together as the people of God. And it's also why it's important to be here for worship, to see our lives shaped, first of all, in this relationship with the living God so that every single week we would be reminded there would be a covenant renewal between us and our God that we would be his people and that he would be our God. And this is why our children need this sort of pattern so desperately so that the promises are really pressed into our hearts and into our minds because they will shape everything that we think and everything that we know. And to give us this experience in even fuller ways, the Lord puts this song upon our lips. We're going to sing it in just a few moments from Psalm 95. Oh, come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker, for he is our God. And we are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. God wants us to be telling him with our own voices, confessing our faith, not simply that we believe this is a true promise God has made out there in general, but you and I in song and in testimony of our own mouths are to take the name of Jesus Christ upon our lips 
and to say, He is my Savior and He is my Lord. He is my God, just as the Apostle Thomas did when he met the risen Lord Jesus Christ. So we're going to sing that in just a few moments. The the blessings of God just continue to pour out upon us as we experience life with our God. And we want to just finally reflect then upon the future of this promise. The future of this promise. What is it? Well, there's first of all the pieces that we've already looked at, which is the promise that God made to Abraham. He's going to be God to us and to our descendants after us. He's going to continue to bless one generation after another as he leads people to faith in Jesus Christ. And we should expect that and we should seek to invest in the lives of our children. We should seek to invest in others in evangelism and missions so that we can see this great promise spread to others as well. What a pity it would be for us to hold this to ourselves. That's why we don't worship in private so that others can be welcomed in and to see what happens here so that they too can look on like Ruth did of old and say, God is surely among them. That's what happens when unbelievers come here and they see you believing this promise. All I need to do in one sense is to convince you to believe these promises and the future is very bright without even pressing you to other applications. You believe the promise that God has given that he will be your God And you will be his people and the world will be transformed. But it's not just a a blessing that's for us here on this earth. The future of this blessing is for those who are weeping even this week because they've lost loved ones. Because, you know, in marriage, as uh, I mentioned earlier, the promise is always made till death do us part. God doesn't put that restriction on his promise. In fact, he goes completely in the opposite direction. But even on through death itself, our constant guide is he, Psalm 73 says. God is the one who raises the dead just as he showed Ezekiel in that vision in Isaiah chapter 37. And he promises that in the new heavens and the new earth, these promises will remain the same. John, in Revelation 21, he sees that vision of the new heavens and the new earth. He sees the holy city, the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven. And what does he hear with a loud voice in verse 3? Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them And they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And as one person in the congregation recently said to me in their own grief, they said, you know, the reason he realizes that that promise is there that God is going to wipe away every tear is because there are tears. And you have grief in your hearts even as you're sitting here this evening. That's why this promise is so precious, beloved. Because God promises not just to be your God in the here and now to help you sort of muddle through. He gives you hope for all eternity. And your Savior is going to be there to wipe away your tears once and for all. And he does it by the presence of his spirit in our midst and even in our brokenness here in this life. He's going to be our God 
and we will be his people just as he has promised he already is. And he says in verse 7 of Revelation 21, to the one who conquers will have this heritage and I will be his God and he will be my son. How do we conquer? We conquer by faith in Jesus Christ. We conquer simply by reveling in this promise, by believing it, by taking it to heart. I pray that you'll believe it. The promise of your God, that he will be your God and you will be his people. Let's pray. Lord, it's our great joy to have you as our God. What an honor. What a privilege. We thank you for it. We don't just thank you for it. We worship you for it. We extol you. We praise you. And we give you everything we have and everything we are. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.